Every restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry, to confide in a friend, or to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to appear in control falls away, where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. From America's Test Kitchen, I am El Simone Scott, and this is The Walk-In. Hey, El, this is Carla. Can you meet me in the walk-in? I just feel like I gotta talk to you about when I was doing this hobo walk with an Edwards lemon meringue pie down the railroad track. Come on, girl. Today is one of my favorite days because I have Carla Hall in the walk-in with me. You all may know Carla from Top Chef, maybe even The Chew. I know Carla as a mentor and as a friend, and I've had the honor of working with her for many years. Today, she's going to talk to us about life, about restaurants, about successes, failures, and biscuits. I love her biscuits, but I'm going to let her tell you all about it. Hey, Carla, welcome to the walk-in. Elle, it's so great to be here with you. Uh, This is the first walk-in that I've been in that hasn't felt cold. This one feels very warm, very inviting. (laughs) It can get a little chilly in here sometimes, though. But overall, the vibe is is warm. It's warm. I'm so glad you're with us today. Thanks for coming into the walk-in. Oh, yeah. You asked me to come into a walk-in, an igloo, (laughs) whatever. I'll be there. I I would call you for that, too, because I I know it would be a good time. And and speaking of a good time, I just want to um, just quickly talk about your sweet potato biscuits that are always Mm -hmm. a good time uh, in my house. Everyone loves that recipe. I think that was the very first recipe of yours that I learned and had to cook for you. Mm -hmm. And um, it is still impressive to the fans and the friends. Can you tell me who influenced you on on the biscuit plane? Like, that's just not something you pick up off the street. Someone has to love you to teach you how to make biscuits like that. You know, it it was my grandmother, but I really feel, and thank you for saying all of that about the biscuits. I I love making biscuits. I remember my grandmother making them. But the interesting thing is I wasn't really cooking when my grandmother was cooking. I, I And then she passed away. So everything that I get from the biscuits is from memories of her and actually talking to her spirit. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, in my family, I call myself the culinary matriarch because we have a really small family. And when one person leaves the family, there's a big hole, especially when that's the one person who cooks. <laughs> so, you know, everything that I do is based on memory and then taking those memories and the techniques that I know and trying to recreate our food history in our family. So you're cooking definitely requires you to tap into your ancestral knowledge. Yes. And I didn't realize I was doing that until when my family would have the food. And it wasn't until I was really doing cookbooks. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what to write about. Mm-hmm. I, I have no idea, you know, and really trying to tap into the food that I used to eat. But, but, but I do know intuitively that's what I do. I wasn't conscious Mm -hmm. that I was doing that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I do. Often when I start a recipe that I know I learned from my grandmother or my great-grandmother, I think when I start, I always start with like the conversation like, okay, Gran, what did you do now to this, through that? You know, like I kind Mm -hmm. of always start that way just... Like, huh, I need you to bring it back to me. It's been a long time. Or maybe she taught me how to make it a different way. You know, because you know how we cook. We're a pinch of this, a splash of that, yep. a touch of this, you know. So I, I definitely understand it. And I don't I don't think I was ever doing it knowledgeably, but like intuitively. I, I dig that mm-hmm. 100%. What is one of your dishes that you've learned or that you bring back from your childhood uh, that you would say is your favorite to either just eat or recreate? Hands down, my grandmother's five flavor pound cake, mm. hands down. And I and and I tell you why that one. I mean, not only do I love it, but it's also the one that my grandmother would send to the grandkids. There were only four of us. Mm-hmm. And we, we share in that love of that cake. So when I would make it and I would send it to my cousins and my sister, uh, they were like, oh. And then, and then it would start this whole 
line of stories about Granny or when you received that cake. So it was more than just the cake. It's the stories, like you were saying, it's the stories that go with it and remembering those good times as a family when Granny was around. Where was Granny sending cakes from? She was sending them from Lebanon, Tennessee, Ah. which is 30 miles outside of Nashville. Okay. Not to be mistaken with Lebanon, it is Lebanon. Lebanon. Let's let it be known. <laughs> the Lebanites want to be represented properly. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, well, that you know, that actually brings me to one of the other powerful food experiences I've had with you. I, I think I should give our listeners a little bit of a context. We do have a history, you and I. Mm-hmm. I used to work at The Chew with you, where you were formerly a co-host in the kitchen, and um, we repaired to do... Your book event, like you were you were doing your press yep. stuff and I was supporting you on the back end. And I think that was mostly the beginning of our, our working relationship. And I've had the, the deep pleasure of working with you in that capacity uh, many times. And I think at the height of the times where we were working together, you were really introducing the food media world, at least, to um, Nashville Hot Fried Chicken. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, yes. You know, I honestly, after doing some research, I, I think I can safely say that you were the chef to really kind of bring that to the American forefront, like overall. Like, I've been to Prince's in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a very special place, it's a very special moment, you know. And prior to a friend who lived there taking me there, I didn't even know it existed, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was very excited to see you bringing it to the forefront. I think um, when you when you think of hot chicken, uh, of course, you think of Prince's. You also think of Hattie B's. You know, the hot chicken was a thing. Obviously, in Nashville, there's a hot chicken festival. There were people who had gone to Nashville and had taken um, hot chicken back to their neighborhoods, their worlds. Mm-hmm. It was in Australia. But it was also... I think that it was in pockets. And so unless you knew about those people, you didn't really know about hot chicken. And and I, I it's funny, I never thought about myself being uh, accredited for taking it nationally. But when I decided to do a restaurant which was focused around hot chicken, mm-hmm. I was doing Kickstarter. And Kickstarter is all about social media and sort of building your crowdsourcing on social media. And, you know, that was part of the job before the restaurant opened. Mm -hmm. I got beat up, though, for that also. I got beat up for taking it nationally. I mean, there were people in Nashville like, how dare you, you know, take our dish and, you know, and blast it all over the place. Yeah, I mean, people thought that it should have stayed in Nashville. And and my response to that was, you know that most food that you're eating right now <laughs> came from somewhere else, right? Right. <laughs> you know, this will be somebody who loves spaghetti. Do you think spaghetti started in Nashville? You know, it yes. could be somebody who even liked okra, black eyed peas. Do you know that those did not begin and originate here in America, that they came from Africa? So, you know, it's funny. And, and I, I was beat up by some people about appropriations, even though I'm Black and I'm from Nashville. Mm -hmm. And and so because of that, it started a a huge conversation with me. But yes, and I I won't even get into that, but yes, hot chicken and and just falling in love again with the food from where I was from. Mm -hmm. Well, I definitely uh, appreciate the way that it was brought to the forefront because there are a lot of non-Black-owned hot chicken restaurants, you know, and I think that I find it a more appropriate introduction to get it from a Black woman from Nashville. I mean, that's pretty much all I got to say about that. (laughs) You know. Well, I I think also the power in bringing something nationally is that all of those smaller places that wouldn't have been known or seen, they're now seen. And when Mm -hmm. people came to me and said, oh my God, I can't believe Kentucky Fried Chicken is doing hot chicken. They stole it from you. I'm like, no, they didn't. However, I mean, because when you think about a chain Mm -hmm. actually doing a food like hot chicken, they had to have been doing R&D for years, yes. like five, 10. I mean, that that is a slow turn. That is, <laughs> that is like a lorry trying to move on a highway, trying to turn around, right? It's not like some tiny car. So it just means that the awareness is there. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you start seeing things all around, the potential for people who have been doing it 
um, to actually be more successful in it, hopefully, is there. And, and that's how I choose to look at it. Sure. Before we go too far, I want to kind of just like tiptoe back to Nashville, Tennessee, back in the day when Carla was a little girl. And I would love to hear about how you grew up. FIFO. First in, first out. So this is the first segment of the walk-in. It's called FIFO. Do you know what FIFO stands for? First in, first out. I was an accountant. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. So, you know, we're going to talk about your story a little bit. We're going to talk about Carla back in the day, and then we're going to bring it home to the present so you can tell us what's been going on with you. That sounds great. Awesome. Tell me about young Carla and and what her day-to-day was. Oh, wow. My day-to-day, young, young Carla. So, okay, so I lived in Nashville until I was 18. Young, young Carla. I think about when I was going to St. Vincent de Paul School. It was a Catholic school, really small, max, like 30 kids in a class. And I went there from kindergarten to eighth grade. My parents, George Halls, my dad, George Mars Hall and Audrey Hall, they they divorced when I was seven, but I still had a really tight relationship with my dad. Mm-hmm. And my dad was a really good cook. His mother was a great cook. His dad was a great cook. And then on <laughs> on my mother's side, my grandmother was a great cook. My mother wasn't. My grandfather wasn't. So, you know, we were very close to both sides of the family. After school, our grade school was near... Fisk University and Meharry Hospital. So my mo- my grandmother, my father's mother, worked at Meharry Hospital. Mm-hmm. So after school, I would get picked up in the Kitty Mobile, which was uh, an electric 225, which we called a deuce and a quarter. <laughs> uh, we would get picked up in the Batmobile, the black car. She would drive me and Kim over to the hospital. But before we got there, we would stop at this place to get some fried Pineapple rings and chicken. Mm, That sounds yummy. Like these huge chicken drum legs that um, had all of this really crispy, crunchy coating. And, you know, we might take that over to my grandmother's office at the hospital and be sitting there smelling antiseptics, but also chicken. (laughs) Chicken and pineapples. So Kim is your sister, by the way, right? Kim is my sister. Yeah, she's 17 months older. Okay, okay. And so you Mm -hmm. and Kim getting your after-school life with your fried pineapple rings and fried chicken in the doctor's (laughs) office. Here's something really uncanny. I promise every time I'm in a conversation with uh, one of my guests in the walk-in, there's something about our lives that are very parallel. It's starting to make me feel like I'm friends with people on purpose in life, right? Mm -hmm. My grandmother also was a nurse at Detroit's first Black-owned OBGYN office. And I, too, mm. would get picked up after school and would sit there. And I would sit in there and do Highlight Magazine games. Yes! Oh, my gosh, yes! Yes! yes. And my very first job, you're going to laugh when I tell you this, my very first job in life that I actually got a dollar for was um, sterilizing equipment, if you know what I mean, at the doctor's office. The actual machines, I would like take the tongs and put the equipment in and close it, turn on the infrared light, time it, everything, repackage them. At eight years old, that was my very first job, packaging forceps. I did not though have fried good fried chicken and pineapple rings. So I would definitely like to hear more about, you know, just like those experiences with you and Kim and the things that you were eating. Well, you know, I remember, and it's funny, this the, the when someone asks a question and how you go down this road of stuff that you don't normally talk about, which is what I what I love, because I, I never plan anything in my head. But when we used to go to my grandmother's house in Lebanon mm-hmm. and there was a, a railroad track, it wasn't that far from her house, maybe um, a half a mile. But we would take whatever leftovers there were. We would, we would pretend like we were hobos and we would like make a sandwich. And whenever we went to Granny's, she would have that. Edward's lemon meringue pie. Mm-hmm. She would keep it in the freezer and we would take a piece and we'd wrap it up and we'd have our sandwich and we'd put it <laughs> we would put it on a stick with a with, with a, a handkerchief. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we yes. Did. I did that. I did that. Totally. <laughs> and then we would walk to this railroad track. And then we were walking down the railroad track, not thinking that a train could possibly come. Mm-hmm. 
So here we were walking down the railroad track, and then there was this sofa that was on the side of the track, and we would sit there. We're like, well, it's time to have our lunch. And so we would <laughs> open up, <laughs> take it off our stick, lay the napkin in our laps, and and have whatever. And, and in my head, I remember it was either like smothered pork chops or a meatloaf sandwich or, you know, something cold. Mm-hmm. And and then we would have our pie and then we would hike back and say, she's like, where were you? Like, oh, we walked down the railroad tracks. <laughs> we're sitting on this couch. <laughs> you know, everybody was worried about us, but it was just so much fun and we were so adventurous. But the adventures always centered around food. Mm-hmm. Did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? Yes. What was that? I wanted to be an actress. Ah, Were you acting out scenes for your family? Well, okay. Let me just say first, let me back up. Because if you talk about FIFO, before I wanted to be an actress, I wanted to be a cartoonist. Oh. Before I wanted to be a cartoonist, this is so weird and I'm going to share it. I wanted to be a cashew nut. I thought (laughs) cashews were, I was that weird kid. I wanted to be this inanimate object, like a cashew, because they were so delicious and creamy and just the shape of them. I'm like, this is just beautiful. This is a great thing to be. Wow. Yeah. That is very interesting. I love that. It's special. It's interesting to say. I, I mean, I think I spent a year wanting to be a cashew nut. But the funny thing is when you think about that, and then you think about theater, and how you have to become a thing, mm-hmm. and you're like, well, how is that thing? What does it look like? How does it become toasted? Where is it hanging on the tree? You know, so I, I got that, honestly. That was going to be my next question, though. Like, how how would you become a cashew? Like, because I'm pretty sure you had thought that out. Well, when you look at a cashew, it actually looks like an embryo. It looks like a baby. Mm-hmm. The cashew is actually a fruit. It's not a nut. And so as it's hanging on the tree, just almost like it's hanging in a hammock, just relaxing and just swaying. And then it's, it's so it drops down. And here you have this cashew that then it cracks open out of that shell. And then you see that fruit and then it has to get toasted. I, there are so many facets of this funeral. <laughs> I, I'm loving this. If you all could see my face right now, I'm so involved. Like, this is very interesting, wanting to be a cashew. Yeah. It's a good nut, though. But it's good. It's a, it's a, good, it's nut. a good nut. But I always drew. So I used to draw in school. I was that kid who um, would help the teacher with the bulletin board and everything and draw pictures. That was my whole thing with 4-H. So I, I drew a lot. So I thought I wanted to be a cartoonist. But then I saw my first play on Broadway mm-hmm. when I was almost 12. And it was Bubbling Brown Sugar. My uncle was in the chorus of Bubbling Brown Sugar. And I was like, that's it. I came home and I was reenacting these scenes. And my mother was like, oh my gosh, after a month, oh my God. (laughs) Okay, let me put this girl in theater because I was really shy. I mean, I was painfully shy. And that was the one thing that sort of cracked me open not to go back to the pseudo nut analogy. I mean, you kind of knew though. You kind of knew there was something in there that needed to come out. Yeah, yes, yes, Mm -hmm. yes. Something unexpected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is that's really interesting. But it it makes sense because I've recently, or at least in the recent years, you've gotten to do some Broadway. You did The Lion King, yeah. which was yes. extremely exciting. It was just so magical. I'm glad you got that experience. Yeah, well, I did. I did um, Newsies. I did Mary Poppins. I did Waitress. I did Lion King. I did. What other play was that? Oh, I was on, um, I got to do Cirque du Soleil. So you are you are an actress. That's pretty much, that's that. I mean, once you have more than three things on your resume, you are that thing. I, I accept. I, I accept. But you know, it's funny because that was the great thing about working for ABC. Mm-hmm. I got to do all of these other things and, and doing the chew. They were like, what do you want to do? And the one thing, just coming into the show, they knew that they wanted to integrate our real lives with the show because that makes it authentic. I'm like, I don't have a problem with that. So I was always the one when they said, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Okay, I want to do plays. I want to do race car driving. I want to do all of these other things. I didn't think that they saw me in the th- in the studio, so I didn't really get to participate. If you watch the earlier shows, you don't really see me doing cooking segments. I was just the sidekick. The only way that I could be seen and do what I wanted was to say yes to the field pieces. Mm -hmm. So 
I said yes all the time. And it, it was almost a second job. I was doing so many things outside of the studio. Isn't it funny how food can bring us to so many other parts of our lives that we just never even expected? It's so magical mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And so with that in mind, I know you didn't actually become an actress immediately. You you were an accountant, right? Yes. Yes. I was an accountant. Hence knowing what FIFO and LIFO are. <laughs> I, I didn't even know that that FIFO was like a, a cross profession term. I didn't know any other place other than the kitchen used that. So that is mm-hmm. also new information today. I'm learning so much. That's why you do these things. That's why a podcast is so interesting. Yeah, totes, yes. totes. Okay, so you were an accountant. Mm-hmm. Tell me when and how food started to come into your life after that point. I think, you know, other than having to cook for myself, mm-hmm. You know, once I left college, and I say once I left college because in college I was just going out to eat and making little things. It was when I quit accounting. So I'm in Ocala, Florida, and like like I said, I was an accountant, and we were doing an on-site audit, and we were counting I-Beam. And I saw this accountant across from me, a ways down, and he was folding a piece of paper. At least this is how I remember it in my head. It may not have happened this way, but it was very traumatic. <laughs> And this guy was trying to line up the edges of this paper. And I felt like he was just so intent on lining up these edges. And it took him a full minute. I'm staring at him with horror Mm -hmm. (laughs) that it took him a full minute to line up the edges of this paper. And then he folded it. And I was like, oh, my God, that cannot be me. Mm. And I tendered my resignation in two weeks. I said, no. And I... The idea was I was afraid of being 40 and hating my job, like afraid to move. Yeah, And so I didn't know where I was going. It was a bridge between what I knew I didn't want to do, which was accounting, right. and, and what I eventually wanted to do. And I didn't know what that was. And so modeling became the bridge for me. And then I went to Europe and I was modeling. And it was over there. As big an oxymoron as it sounds, that's when I fell in love with food because... I started to miss home. I started to, because I was living in Paris, mm-hmm. I started to miss my grandmother's food. And um, I, I hated Oreos. I, I did not like <laughs> chocolate cookies. And I had a, um, had a whole thing about Oreos. So I hated Oreos. I'm in Paris and I'm, I'm missing home and I, I craved Oreos. Hmm. I was craving Oreos and they were expensive over there. But there was this woman named Elaine, Elaine Evans, who was from Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And she would do these Sunday brunches where the models would come over and we would have these gatherings and it just felt like home. It felt like most of them were from New Jersey and New York, most of the girls. And they were making buffalo wings and macaroni and cheese and all this stuff. And I was fascinated. I'm like, oh, my God, you know how to make macaroni and cheese. And everybody's talking about, well, my mother makes macaroni and cheese like this. Well, my mother makes it like this. Well, my mother does this. And my mother uses an egg. And I realized I had no idea. Hmm. A dish that I had had all my life going to Sunday supper at my grandmother's house. And I had no idea how it was No context whatsoever. (laughs) None. None. I just know there was some noodles. There's some cheese. I didn't know how the thing came together. And I started buying cookbooks. I started going to the English bookstore and buying cookbooks, W.H. Smith. Mm -hmm. And that's how I started getting into food. And then because people allowed me to couch surf (laughs) in their living rooms and I started cooking for them as a uh, just a sense of gratitude. Sure. Just let, thank you for letting me stay here. And and that's really how it all started. Okay, so you're gifting your friends food. You're bartering, basically. Um, yep. And did you make a business out of that? Eventually, I did. Eventually, I came back home, and um, there was a, one of the— one of the models who was now back in D.C., and I was staying now in my sister's house mm-hmm. in D.C., and I had done— uh, some food for her, ba- my sister's baby shower. And my friend, who is now back in D.C., who was living in Paris, couldn't come. And I said, oh, I have some leftovers. And she said, great. You know, I don't have anything to eat at work. I said, well, I'm going to bring you the leftovers tomorrow. And so I got up the next day, and my brother-in-law had eaten the leftovers. And I was like, oh, no, I was going to take these to Patrice. 
And so I got up, I ran around, I recreated some of the things. It was a lemon blueberry bread. It was a quiche. It was biscuits with smoked turkey. And then I think, I feel like I made a chess pie. No, no rhyme or reason. And like a salad, Mm -hmm. curry, chicken salad. So I got all these things together. I put them in little baggies and portions. I said, well, I'll just share it with the people in her office. Like, what am I going to put it in? So I grabbed this picnic basket, threw everything in there. I go to her office. And I walk in the door. She's like, hey, this is my friend Carla. She has a business. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Uh, so I look up and I'm like, inside, I'm I'm startled. But actually, outside, they were like, oh, what's the name of your business? And I looked down at the picnic basket that I just grabbed to put this stuff in. I looked back up. I said, it's the lunch basket. Mm. And they're like, oh. And they they grab things out. They're like, how much do things cost? I said, no, no charge today. Oh, well when, well, when will you be back? And I said, tomorrow. And so I did that every single day. I would make sandwiches. I would go and deliver them. And then within a week, I had seven clients. Within two weeks, I had 14. I went door-to-door, hair salons, doctor's offices, florist shops. You know, That's what I did for five years. So I created that business and just taught myself how to cook. And then I went to culinary school at 30. The Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream program has been helping food and beverage entrepreneurs get their dream businesses off the ground since 2008. They've given out millions of dollars in loans and provided coaching for thousands of small business owners. But when I asked founder Jim Cook what his favorite part of the program is, his answer is simple. The people. A woman who was among our first recipients, Carlino Guerra is her name, and her family's from the Caribbean, so she's first generation, and she was really, really passionate about baking. And ultimately, she got big enough, she was able to open her own store, and her family basically renovated the store. They did the demolition, they did a bunch of the construction, and the mayor of Boston, actually, Marty Walsh, showed up for this opening in Blue Hill Avenue in in Mattapan. And it was just so cool. Brewing the American Dream turns good ideas into brick-and-mortar realities. For more information or to apply, go to www.brewingtheamericandream.com. You can also get info about upcoming events on Facebook at Brewing the American Dream or on Instagram at Sam Adams BTAD. I started out as a social worker, and like so many other people in this industry, I decided later in life that I wanted to pursue my culinary dreams. The Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts is made for people like us. Their programs are flexible enough for all kinds of students, from the career changer, like me, to the experienced industry professional looking to add new skills. With their curriculum, you get it all, the classic culinary training, plus the business foundation to take you to the next level. Check out escoffier.edu to learn more. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. Okay, so just, you know, for a quick recap, you grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. Your relationship with food started just imaginatively with you and your sister and um, enjoying the food that your grandmother made, but you didn't really get into learning it from her, which is not unusual, you know. When the food is good, who cares how it's made? You just want (laughs) to eat it, you know? And so you go to college, you study accounting, you do it for a short time, you model, because if you all don't know, Carla Hall is statuesque. And then you go to Paris and you start to really get into knowing food for yourself, cooking for yourself and and trying to give yourself the comfort of home by way of dish and start cooking for family. That's, I think that is a, a very smart first go at things and seems that everyone loved it and you started a business. When did Top Chef come into the picture? So I was 30 by the time I went to culinary school. By the time I did Top Chef, I was 44. So that's 14 years mm-hmm. of being in the industry. And, I, and I'm and i making a point of 
sharing that because it's so funny how so often people start, jump go to culinary school like I want to be on TV, you know, um, when a lot of people have worked in the industry. Everything big in my life happens so organically that I just sort of put it out there in that way. I'm like, tell me which way I should go. And Top Chef was was not different. I was introduced to the show Top Chef by Matthew, my husband. Mm-hmm. And he had been watching this show. And I remember at the end of a, a really busy catering season, I just sat on the couch and binge watched you know, all of the seasons before they start another new season. And so that was around season four. And then I had my sous chef come into the kitchen one day and she said, oh, I had a dream that you were on Top Chef. And when I went home, I had a phone call from a producer from Magical L saying, oh, are you interested in doing Top Chef? And then I had it on my cell phone. I had it on my home phone. And I thought it was a crank call because what are the chances that that would have happened in the same day? Yeah, I was just getting ready to ask you that. Like you hadn't even, Matthew mentioned it, but you didn't move forward with it. It was just serendipitous. Right, right. And so I just, I thought, because I have friends that who would punk me like that. So I was (laughs) 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 those are the kind of friends I have. So I didn't think anything of it. And then they called me back. And they did catch me on the phone, and they had found out about me or gotten my name from the woman who, at the time, was the president of Les Dames d'Escoffier, Catherine Newell-Smith. And so she had given them my name. I didn't know it was Catherine, Mm -hmm. right? So when I had to put together this whole application— I went to Catherine to ask her for a referral. Oh, what do you call it? A reference. A reference. <laughs> and um, she was like, of course, silly. I gave them your name. I had no idea. Wow. And I had never asked Catherine for anything. I had never asked her for a reference for anything else. It just, it was so serendipitous. So then I went for the interview, which was in at CIA, upstate New York in Hyde Park, and and I'm and I'm going through this whole story because it's like all of these moments. I love these kinds of stories. I want to hear all of the moments that make you <laughs> almost want to just like jump out the window because they're so unbelievable. Tell me. Yeah. Okay. So the next moment was getting there, having my application, and then Catherine was like, "I've set it up so that you can get VIP treatment." I don't know what that meant. It really. With, I was with everybody else. So I go in. <laughs> I think she just said that to I, boost your confidence. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, right. So I shouldn't be nervous. So I went in there and it was a group interview and they were talking to us and, and they were asking me, so what was one of your favorite moments of Top Chef? I was like, oh my God, when Richard Blaze and Dale Taldy were at the movie theater and then I, I literally, I saw the entire thing where they had the improv and they had to give people like all of these different foods and mm-hmm. stuff. And I was like, that was just so amazing, right? I was like all into it. And then that was it. And then I left and <laughs> there was nothing. And then I get back to the train station Because it was a day trip Mm -hmm. from D.C. And I was at the train station and I was telling Matthew about how it went. And then my phone was dying. And then I said, oh, well, my phone is dying. I just wanted to call you. And I turned my phone off and I noticed that I had that little emblem of a a mail. Yes, I said, oh, shoot, I have a message. Let me check my message before I can't check it anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was the producer saying, Carla, can you come back? to do a second interview. I was 20 minutes from jumping on the train and I just happened to have looked at my phone. Wow. And so I went back, had another interview and and then I had another series of interviews, but it was just like in that moment, how amazing that was. I love those stories. I love that. I also love serendipitous moments. I live for them. I I have a lot of them also. And what's interesting is that I love D.C., Anybody who knows me knows that I really love D.C. And I've been trying to live here since college. And the universe is not really ready to to put me there. It, the universe does not want to be my co-conspirator. However, I tried and I applied for Howard University's doctoral program, Culture, Communications, and Media. I was like, I'm, I'm going to do this. This is how I'm going to get there. 
And I did the application. I had all of my top professors write letters, all of the things. And um, at the same time, I had been auditioning for ATK, um, not mm-hmm. not knowing. It was a blind audition. I had no idea what I was doing at all around. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and you know, because I called you many times like, what? I don't know what to do, you know? Um, uh-huh. And uh, I left out my house after coming back from Boston, doing a real life audition, checked my mail as usual because I was a freelancer and I'm always looking for checks. And Word. Always, right? <laughs> and and uh, I got a letter from Howard in the mail and I, and I opened it on my soup in Brooklyn. And it was like, unfortunately... We can't accept you at this time. Uh, I know that this may come as a disappointment. And in that moment, I remember thinking, actually, no, I'm not disappointed. When in reality, like regular me would have been devastated. I've never been turned down from a school in my life, right? Right. And then I go about my day. I come off of the J train and walking down the steps. My friend from Mississippi who lives in New York or lived in New York at the time called. And he's like, hey, gir- hey, gal, how was Boston? And I'm like, it was good. It was and in the middle of my second sentence. My phone rings and it's the producers at ATK asking me if I would come and join the team. See. It's those moments, I think they're so important. And I because I feel like it lets you know that you are on your destiny's path. Yes, yes, yes. So you go on Top Chef, you mm-hmm. kill it, by the way, which was, the, that was the first time that I was introduced to you as a Black woman chef in the industry. It was really great to watch. And I think that for me, the takeaway of watching you on Top Chef was that you don't necessarily have to win to mm-hmm. be the winner or or to Correct. be winning, right? Winning is a, yes. is, a, is a constant. Yes. You know, just watching you use that brand platform to really be smart and capitalize on how you could extend your career from that platform is very inspiring. And there is a lot of takeaway from, from that, or at least it was for me. And I think other people paying attention feel the same way. But I didn't really think about Top Chef as a tool to further my career. Mm-hmm. I never did. I thought about it as an experience that I wanted to have in my lifetime along the way. And so when people say, oh, you know, I want to go on this show because I want to further my career, I'm like, great. And they have a plan. Mm -hmm. I didn't. When I did Top Chef All-Stars and I was asked like three or four times, producers calling me, please do the show. And I, I kept saying no. And they said, well, basically make it part of your plan. Mm -hmm. And because I had such a hard time transitioning back into catering with with the demand and feeling like I was doing it by myself and, and pulling in partners that I probably shouldn't have pulled in. I said, okay, the only reason I'm going to do Top Chef All-Stars is because I want to tell people I don't cater anymore. That was my reason. (laughs) That was my plan. Hmm. My plan is to tell you I don't cater. (laughs) Yes. And so that's why I went back. My PR company was trying to tell me not to do it because they were trying to tell me to be on my own path, to to not be associated with Top Chef anymore because it had been three mm-hmm. years since I was on it. So you're, you're sort of on your way to becoming your own brand and not associated with another large brand. And so I said, okay, now I'm going on with a plan. And and that that was the plan to sort of disconnect from my previous life and to get on another path. Once you freed yourself of the uh, the cater reputation, yeah. I hear that. I, d- I love to tell people all the time I don't cater. Like I do it for friends, oh, but like I can't. I thought I always thought I wanted to be a caterer until I worked for a catering company. And I was like, this is too many moving parts for my brain. I just. Girl, it's like a mover. You're a food you're a mover. Food. And you're a food mover. <laughs> and, um, you know, two, two guys with a truck. It's like whatever with a truck and catering mm-hmm. with food. And I remember I tell people I'm a recovering caterer. I used to know like two years out when I, my last day of catering, I would say, no, I don't cater. I'm a recovering caterer. It's been 423 days since my last catering job. It's been 526 days since my last catering job. It, it feels that, that way. Was, it's a real, it's a real yeah. thing. It's hard on the body. It's hard on the soul. Yes. It is, it's not easy. The wall slide. 
Well, speaking of transitions, we're going to transition over to the part of the podcast that I like to call the wall slide. Okay. You know, it's <laughs> it's that meltdown moment, perhaps, or the moment you recover from the meltdown. Mm. And I want to talk about transitions because you have experienced a lot of them, and some of them were good, really good. And then some of them yeah. were, we'll say, not what you imagined right. or expected. And a couple of those that you've been very open about and share is um, the shoot being canceled ending and Mm -hmm. your restaurant closure. But I do want to know about how life started to shift for you when the shoot got canceled and, you know, how did you go from there? That's like, that was like your mainstay, you know? Right. I mean, it was, it was a regular job and it was my favorite job and I, I loved it. And the ending was really quick and it was shocking However, I, and I, there was one. I made there was one year of making decent money, mm-hmm. you know, where I didn't feel like I was playing catch up all the time, you know, like one mm-hmm. and <laughs> uh, one, the last one. But when we were told that the show was ending, I had two thoughts. The first thought was, "Oh, dang, Matthew just quit his job." We just talked about, "Hey, you know, I have a, a pretty decent contract. Go ahead and quit your job." And I because. Matthew did that for me in terms of doing the chew and deciding to, you know, move to New York part-time to do the chew. And I said, it's your turn. It's your turn to figure out what you want to do. And I think if you are happy as an individual, we'll be happy as a couple. And so that was the decision. And so he had quit his job two weeks before. The second thing that came to mind was when... I had seen a psychic. Yes, I'm that person. I had seen too, a girl. psychic. Uh, <laughs> Read my cards, right. please. Let me know. Okay. Yes. Season two of The Chew. And I just had a really tough time transitioning, whether people saw it or not. It was really tough to transition um, to being a host on a daytime television show and the the pressure of being on a major network. I mean, the, the pressure that we were actually in hindsight, we're protected from from the network because it's so such a competitive space. Mm-hmm. So I went to the psychic and I said, just tell me, am I going to get fired? Because I need to mm-hmm. know. I can't afford New York. And just tell me if I'm going to get fired because I need to prepare. Because I was like, without a job, I need to go back to D.C. Right. I mean, I'm very practical and pragmatic when it comes to my finances and that, I, <laughs> right? So he said, the, the psychic said, no, you're, you're going to have that job for five more years. Mm-hmm. And so it ended in year seven. Wow. It, and that's the guy said it's going to go years. for five more years. And that was seven. So I did not feel I was shocked when it was when they were telling me. But I also said and I remember turning to the makeup artists and um the hairstylist and and when people were told there were tears and 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 actually the day that I was told I was supposed to go and tape an episode of Beat Bobby Flay mm-hmm. and you know I went I had fun on the show and Michael Simon told me later that Bobby called him and said dude I know I just heard the news what you told me but Carla was great she you wouldn't even know that she just basically <laughs> lost her job that's <laughs> true right And it was because I'm like, okay, it's time for the next Mm -hmm. thing. And the next thing has always, I mean, I'm a hustler. I will create work. And so I remember saying to the makeup artist and all the people who were immediately around me, I said, in a year, I want to find out if you know why the show ended for you Mm -hmm. and where are you. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I focused on. I focused on the next thing. And yeah, I, I, I just went out looking for work and, and creating. And I think that was the best thing for me in terms of uh, social media and working with brands and creating yeah. work and a lane for myself. I love that. You know, that's I'm all about that life. I love to create opportunities. I think although it's a little bit more difficult to create the livelihood from it because you have to be very targeted when it comes to what you choose, not just because you're a brand and you have to protect that, you know, yourself and Mm -hmm. your brand identity, but, you know, it's hard to make the kind of money that you need to survive unless you can be very creative, unless you are very true to yourself, you know, Mm -hmm. but once you've kind of nailed down that formula to be able to do the kinds of things that 
work for you, right? Like you can say yes right. or no, right? That is the best feeling in the world. Like to know you can write your own check in the world is really, is very liberating. Well, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. In that time of uncertainty, have you ever said yes to a job that you knew wasn't for you and you did it for the money? Yes, I absolutely have. I absolutely have. And maybe the reason wasn't necessarily ethical. Maybe it was just something that I knew was not really completely in alignment with what I wanted my future to look like. But Mm -hmm. I do always try to go into opportunities, finding what I can take from it. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe Mm -hmm. I'm meant to meet a person or maybe this is just about a relationship build. It's not always about the actual work. You know, for me, as long as it was in food and legal, I would do it, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that is so true. You are such a, a great worker with such a great work ethic. And which is why it was always so like, all right, Elle, what are you doing? Can you do this? Can you go to Barbados? Can you do I know. You took me to Barbados <laughs> for work and basically was like, here's the kitchen. I'll see you in a couple hours. And I was like, okay, this is awesome. <laughs> Except that it was so hot that I had to do my work in the pastry cooks. Yes. Refrigerator cooking space. In the walk-in, yeah, in the that was the that was the <gasps> dude. Carla. Okay, you see how life comes oh back. Oh my gosh! Come on, come yes, on. Yes, I was. <laughs> you're welcome. You're everybody. Everybody listening, you heard welcome. it here. ATK, you're welcome. Listen, it is no secret at all that I do give you your due credit all the time. You have really sh- you shaped my life. You know that. You know that. So. Since we've covered that and and I learned something new about your experience with the Chew, let's let's talk about the restaurant for a little bit. Mm-hmm. What was the takeaway from that experience for me? I mean, I know there's it's probably a laundry list, but like, would you do it again? That's probably the question I, I need to an answer you know, for. Would I do it again? If I had a good operator, I would do it again. If I had a good operator, I would do the restaurant again. And I, I learned so much about myself. I think that... That experience taught me to truly appreciate my culture and my food. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people assume, like, you know, when they saw me on Top Chef, oh, she does Southern food. But but to really appreciate it and decide publicly how I want this to feel and, and how I want people to think about this food, how I want other Black people to look at this food and appreciate it and see it with really good ingredients and be proud of it and all of that, mm-hmm. right? So I, I I got all of that and I and I met some amazing people. Um it was the, one of the hardest things I've ever done. I mean physically hard. Mm-hmm. It's it's what I imagine would it would be like to have a baby. And I've never birthed a baby. So what it you know, and the baby's not sleeping for six months and you know you're getting up and you have two jobs mm-hmm. and you know But I learned so much. And the reason I was very public about the restaurant and and it not working out is because there is power in saying to people, you think it's easy, you think you want to do a restaurant, I'm on television, and it still failed. Mm. And there's power in that. And and, And more than anything that I've done, and I remember going out and deciding to talk about it and deciding to look at how we our focus was a little skewed about certain things but there are no wasted moments when you learn something and and to this very day I will run into a chef and and they're like yeah I read that article about you you know all the things that you learned when your restaurant failed that was, that was really cool because people don't talk about the hard side yeah. of it they don't they I mean especially when you hear about celebrities they, most times people want to brush all of the bad stuff under the carpet and nobody learns from it. I'm like, oh no, I will share my lessons. <laughs> right. <laughs> I will share my lessons with you, you know? And um, it was it was such a great experience. It really was. Well, Carla, I, I want to say, um, as I always do, you're very much an inspiration to me. I have never really worked with someone that I felt such a vibe and closeness with. And, you know, I really appreciate how you have paved the way for me to even do the job that I do right now. I saw you do it. And so I knew that I can do it. Mm -hmm. And um, that is not lost on me. I carry it with me everywhere. And I definitely, it's it's making me a little uh, emotional. Is my voice shaking? Oh my God. Well, I want to tell you the first time that I saw you 
interview some people. I feel like it was at a Laydom event or not Laydom. It was um, WCR. WCR. And I was like, wow, look at you. And it was amazing and effortless. And I, and I remember telling you, you were born to do this. This, it was so, you were so comfortable and so conversational. And interviewing people isn't easy. And the first thing is just mm-hmm. being curious about other people. And yes. um, you reek of curiosity and, and you make people feel comfortable. Well, thank you. My family calls it nosy, but I like that you have made it so much better. (laughs) Thank you very much. You heard it, folks. I am inquisitive. (laughs) Thank you, Carla, for coming into the walk-in with me. I loved learning even more about you. All right, girl. I'll see you again soon. I'll see you again soon. Carla has a podcast of her own where you can listen to conversations about finding success through adversity. Listen to Say Yes with Carla Hall wherever you get your podcast. And this is so exciting. You can get some of Carla's delicious food sent directly to your home on Gold Belly. I'll be ordering some of her favorite five-flavor pound cake for sure. One more quick thing. If you like The Walk-In and you want more of these real and unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there... Why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, L. Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Caroline Ricker. Our producers include Caitlin Kelleher and Hen Margolis. Scoring sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Additional engineering by Samantha Gatsik. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our line producer is Diane Knox. Jennifer Cuccidi is our intern. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Escoffier and Samuel Adams. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.